Welcome to episode 159 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. I spent an hour this morning talking about the sorry, sorry state of oil and gas regulation and the Alberta Energy Regulator in Alberta. Not, well, kind of a depressing conversation, but this afternoon, I have the antidote to that. I'm going to be talking to Zachary Carabell, founder of the Progress Network and co-host of the podcast, What Could Go Right. He was educated at Columbia, Oxford, and Harvard, where he received his PhD. He's written widely on economics, investing, history, and international relations. We're going to talk about good news concerning the fight against climate change. So welcome to the interview, Zachary. Thanks so much. Zach, give me the argument for why we should be more positive and upbeat than we than currently seems to be the case. So once upon a time, I wrote a book uh, about the history of Muslim, Christian, and Jewish coexistence called Peace Be Upon You. And it was actually subtitled 14 Centuries of uh, Muslim, Christian, and Jewish uh, Conflict and Cooperation. So it wasn't a history of peace full stop. It was a way of saying, we create these narratives of endless conflict and much of the specifics that fill out that narrative are accurate, but they're also out of context. So if I gave you a book and I told you to read every third page, the pages you would read would be right, right? But you'd get a completely distorted picture when it wouldn't make sense, but it would also in its collective would actually be wrong because it would leave out all these other things. I, I mentioned that because I think that's a lot of what we do with our present. And it's a lot of what we do in the way in which we consume this thing called news and information that has gotten ever more acute in an internet age because there's more news and more noise. Uh, the downside is a lot of that news and noise is geared toward activating hot emotions, fear, outrage, excitement, because that's what gets attention human attention. I don't think there's anything, you know, dark and pernicious about this. I think that's just kind of the nature of human beings. We crave narratives and we crave drama and drama also always involves conflict, right? It's the famous Tolstoy line. There are no novels about a happy family because all happy families are boring, but every fa unhappy family is unhappy in its own special way. So I am less about there's all this good news that we should pay attention to than I am about one, a sensibility of fear and outrage, which is what animates a lot of bad news, feeds on itself. Uh, fear can be a really constructive emotion if it alerts you to danger and problems, but as a foundation for actually making your way through those problems, it sucks individually and collectively. Anger can be a wake-up call that, hey, something's wrong, but as a foundation of policy or purpose, it burns out and leaves you kind of, what now? And I think we're kind of doing that collectively. And one of the results of that is, yes, there is a lot of things that are going on in the world that are quite creative and positive. We certainly live our lives, many of us having good times. Uh, we certainly are surrounded by other people living their lives, fulfilling their dreams, or at least trying to. And we have a lot of evidence of material progress throughout the world over the past couple hundred years. That's kind of unequivocal from caloric abundance to less war, uh, less 
physical insecurity, none of that's necessarily made us happier, but it's still true. So all I'm trying to do in some of my work is encourage us all to take a step back, recognize either what has worked or recognize the work that people are doing to try to make things work, to understand human history as an endless evolution of we solve problems and in the solving of them, we tend to create new ones, which we then have to solve. You talked about the energy crisis, right? We drilled for more oil because there are more people that needed more energy because there were more people on the planet because there was more need for nitrates and fertilizers in order to feed more people on the planet. And we've successfully fueled and fed more people on the planet without complete societal collapse. That's a good thing. Uh, but in the process, we've also created problems. That's a bad thing. <laughs> Let me run a, a hypothesis by you. Uh, a couple of years ago, I attended a workshop on narrative that was led by Dr. Anil Chima, who's a neuro neuropsychiatrist out of Stanford. And we were talking, he was, he started talking about the, the negative, negative narratives, fear-based narratives. And of course, this is 2019 and uh, Donald Trump was in, still in, you know, the ascendancy, he was president and he was all about fear-based narratives. And Dr. Chima said, the only antidote to a fear-based narrative is a hope and optimism narrative. And I wonder the extent to which the rise of what people I interview call authoritarian populism, uh, Trumpism in the States, whatever you call it, but the kind of populism that that depends upon these, you know, fear and fear-based narratives to expand its influence and its reach. And are we not telling ourselves, are we not formulated and and communicated? hope and optimism narratives? And do we need to do more of that? We absolutely need to do more of that. And one of the things I am struck by continually is one, whenever I start talking in terms of hope-based narratives, even I have a voice in myself that goes, oh, come on, <laughs> right? Even to my own internal critic, it sounds naive, <laughs> it sounds facile, it sounds uh, at times indifferent to all the problems out there. And that's part of the problem, that the fear-based narratives, even for those of us who don't buy into them, seem wiser, smarter, uh, more appropriate to the moment. This is a huge deal in, in uh, climate activist communities. I mean, the minute you talk about amelioration or technology leading to lesser output of uh, energy, or urbanization, you know, all the things that kind of offset some of the fears about carbon-based climate change can really anger people. Like, oh my God, you're, you're, you're undermining the urgency of the moment. You are imperiling the ability for us to, to, to seize the few precious years we have less to halt the onward rush into Armageddon. And the only way we're going to do that is if everybody simultaneously around the world recognizes the perilous moment we're in or else we're effed. Uh, that's a problem. It's a problem because it precludes us recognizing or building on things that we're doing that are constructive or trends that are in place that are constructive. Even when you say, hey, things are more stable than we think, right? We've just, we're recording this at the end of March. There's been a flurry of turmoil within the financial system, a brief concern that we might be you know, on the verge of a cliff, a la 2008, 2009. 
And if you try to highlight the inherent stability of the system, the reaction right now is often, yeah, just wait. Just wait. The problem with just wait arguments in the face of things that seem okay is that they're non-falsifiable, right? Like my, my endless joke is if you're going to forecast the end of the world, just don't give a date. Because <laughs> you can always just say, just wait. Well, let me give you an example of a, a discussion I'm having right now with many of my readers uh, on social media. Uh, I've been doing a lot of work over the last few years about research that's going on and in Alberta at the Alberta Innovates. Uh, it's, an, it's a provincial research and development agency. Okay, And they've been working since oh, 2016, maybe, on taking oil sands bitumen and, it, and, and and to make fuel, you know, as a feedstock for refineries, it's awful. The yeah, emissions are sands, really high. Yeah. Oil sands, not, not a great way to produce carbon oil. Not a great way to produce oil. But, but what we do know is that bitumen has a very unique uh, chemical composition that makes it wonderful for creating materials. So A, you create this, you could create carbon fiber and all sorts of other things. And they're in the process of coming up with a commercial process for it. And you would not only uh, add, uh, you could create, you know, manufacturing plants in Alberta making this stuff. And it would be a tremendous driver of capital investment and, and economic opportunity, but you'd stop burning it. Right. I mean, that's the, you know, 3.8 million barrels a day of that could be diverted and to uh, to other uses wouldn't burn it. That for for the the opponents of the oil and gas industry, it's unthinkable to, that there might be actually a positive use for a hydrocarbon. You know, it's we have to stop oil and gas tomorrow, and if we don't, we're gonna have you know have this great cataclysm and it's horrible. You know, climate collapse and all that. I get the seriousness of it. But this is an opportunity to do something that A, reduces emissions and diverts hydrocarbons to something else that's positive. Boy, they have a hard time with that narrative. Yeah. And look, I just uh, I just got back from a trip to Pakistan. I have some investments in Pakistan startups before everyone rolls their eyes. There's actually an interesting, vibrant system there. I mean, I may lose all my money and they may lose their shirts, but, you know, it's still a bunch of young people trying to solve the problems of the present and the future. And uh, Pakistan doesn't have a lot of domestic energy sources. They import almost all their oil and gas, but they do have coal and they have 220 million people, many of whom need energy. And no one's tripping over themselves to like send them free solar panels and it wouldn't solve all their problems anyway. So they're trying to use some of their domestic coal to generate enough power so people can like have electricity and internet and refrigerators and stuff. Uh, and then they're browbeaten by the United States and others for burning coal. Uh, I'm sure there are plenty of people in Pakistan who would love free solar panels and an energy grid and nuclear power, but somebody's got to pay for that and someone's got to make that happen. And in the interim, you're left with, is it better to be in a non-electrified rural village where women have no education and nobody has the internet and nobody has cell phones and nobody has electricity, or is it better to use what you have in the interim to get to where you want to be? And that's another example of, we live in the world that we live in as much as we would like to live in the world that we want to live in. And uh, problems need to be solved. And often the immediacy of that, by the way, 
back to the energy, you know, the, the, the climate change urgency, which I totally agree with as a thing. I just think it's misguided as a, you know, we're not going to get from here to there by suddenly decarbonizing in the next five years. And if you think about Europe in the face of the Ukraine war and the uh, sanctions against R Russian oil and natural gas, and even the Germans who've been uh, the leading proponents of a green revolution suddenly started burning coal. Why? Because they didn't have natural gas from Russia. Uh, I, and why do I say this? I say this as a, we could all benefit from the humility of, uh, we do need to live in the world that we live in. And there are a lot of people trying to live in the world we live in better. We're trying to make reasonably pragmatic uh, solutions to absolutely vital problems, like who's going to supply energy. And human beings have proven over the past 200 years when faced with the worst case scenarios of either innovating their way out of it or adapt or adapting their behavior accordingly. Now, the past is, is prologue. It's no guarantee that we'll do that going forward. But I do wish people would take a little more heart from we have been adept as human beings from avoiding worst case scenarios, either collectively or you know planetarily. We've done a lot of harm. I mean, the wars of the 20th century were cataclysmically bad. Uh, and we haven't actually done anything equivalent to that since 1945. I mean, Chinese uh, famines and Great Leap Forward notwithstanding. And I think we should take some recognition of that, you know. Well, let me tell you a little story from graduate school back in the, uh, the mid-80s. So uh, as a fellow historian, uh, I was taking a class, a professor. It was a historiography class. And so we had to pick a, a historian that we weren't familiar with. And I picked uh, Arnold Toynbee. And I wrote a study of history, all like 11 volumes of it, 2,000 pages. It was, More power to you, man. Well, it was painful. But, you know, hey, I was young and stupid. So I'm reading this thing. My big, one of my big takeaways from Toynbee was that civilizations rise and fall. And the reason they fall is because there comes a, an inflection, a moment in time when they're faced with a great challenge, great crisis. And does the leadership within that civilization rise to the challenge or does it not? And I would argue, and this might not be popular in the time of, of Trump, who's obviously, obviously not president, but still exerting pressure on, and might be president for all we know, to come next election. But there's so much amazing leadership. And it's not, all, some of it's political, but a lot of it is around technology, around capital, around, uh, I mean, there, there are a lot of leaders who are leading in the right direction in youth. Uh, I mean, we can think of many, many examples. And I, I'm optimistic because in part, I see that in this moment in time, this crisis, I think the leadership is coming to the fore. And I think there's a very good chance that we will meet this crisis head on and do the right things and eventually get to where we need to be to mitigate the you know global warming uh, your take you know and a lot of that leadership is local so it doesn't get as heralded a lot of it's mayoral you know or municipal uh i had a very good conversation last june at uh, a conference in toronto with the mayor of calgary uh i think the past few mayors of calgary have been really interesting trying to balance yeah. covid energy industry being very prominent with energy efficiencies and and honoring some of the what appear to be irreconcilables there and finding ways forward and actually finding that if you don't assume 
that people are going to be completely opposed to each other based on, you know, perspectives and interests that you can actually galvanize people to work together because a lot of what we want is shared, not, uh, not, not, you know, nobody really wants polluted air. <laughs> nobody wants their kids not to be able to live freely in the natural environment. Uh, nobody wants early death, you know, like those are pretty basic stuff that most people agree on. And as you said, there's a lot of people in technology and industry. I mean, where technology has gone from kind of the darling of the 1990s into the early 2010s to the demon. And if you talk to most people circa 2011, uh, the leadership of the financial industry were the evil people and the leaders of tech companies like Facebook and Google and Amazon, you know, were, were seen as a positive force in society. And now they are seen as a negative force in society. Uh, but I definitely, you know, it, it, we're, in a, we're in a culturally dark moment. And we is not just Americans, it's not just Canadians. I mean, everybody in the world is royally pissed off at the world that they're in and deeply concerned about the future. It's very hard to find sustained pockets of real optimism. I mean, there are some. Um, uh, you know, I'm sure some of that's a, you know, post-traumatic reaction to the pandemic. Some of it's been percolating in multiple societies for years regardless. And that, you know, when you're in a really foul mood and mired in a kind of sense of fatalistic depression, it's very hard to appreciate what's going right. Uh, those are antithetical realities. And I think we're kind of in that right now. Well, let me give you a hope and optimism narrative for the energy transition. So, because that's what my master's thesis was about. And I, my, my poor podcast listeners, they, they hear me tell the story over and over again. And my, I, I, I've made more hay with my, my, math, my master's thesis on the transition from horses and steam to uh, uh, the internal combustion engine of petroleum in Saskatchewan farming 1900 to 1930 than you can imagine. I go to, I, so well, I go too often, but there's a reason for that. And the, the basic dynamics of that energy transition are very similar to the one we have today. And in that, the, the new technologies, you know, got on the, the adoption S-curve early, in the late 19, 18, mid-1890s, late 1890s. And it took them long, long time to get, you know, up the bottom of that flat curve of the bottom, the flat bottom of the S-curve. But if you look at where the technologies are today, you know, wind and solar and lithium-ion batteries and electric vehicles, they had their roots in the 70s, solar panels, their roots in the 80s, uh, commercial wind turbines, lithium-ion batteries in the early 1990s, the first, you know, EV prototype uh, in the 1990s. All of those, I mean, those technologies that we're now are kind of the, the foundation of the energy transition, they've been coming for 30, 40, and maybe even 50 years. And they're only now, you know, now they're becoming competitive. They've reached the inflection point on the S-curve. They're, they're starting to push out some of the old technologies or soon will. And we're in that, what I call the disruptive decade, where um, they're shaking up markets. And that, in part, it leads to a whole bunch of things. I mean, tremendous change, disruption in the economy, but also disruption uh, politically. And you see that Alberta, you mentioned Calgary. So was it Jody Gondek or, or Nahed Nenshi? It was Jody Gondek. Yeah, yeah, great. Enjoyed, enjoyed talking to her. Well, look, uh, Calgary is the epicenter. It's it's like Houston. 
it's Canada's Houston. Okay. It's kind of the, it's the touchstone for all the stuff that's going on in oil and gas in, in Canada. And the industry there is desperately clinging to the status quo because it's incredibly profitable right now and will be for a while. It doesn't want to change any more than it has to. It wants to change on its own terms and it wants the taxpayer to pay for as much of it as they can get away with. Okay. So they have a very negative kind of fear-based narrative, you know, and they're pushing on hydrocarbons all the time and, you know, greater exports is like a 1980s argument, but nevertheless, even in that, there's still lots of room for hope and optimism narratives. And those of us who who realize how wrong those people are, you know, we push back with arguments, push back with new narratives, push back, you know, reach out to others, try to get conversations going. And really, there's something positive. Uh, I'm looking for another word here, but we'll go with positive. Something positive about the dialectic of that. And maybe something, you know, out of the dialect will, will come another, you know, thesis that will be better than what we had before. Look, I'm, a, I suppose, a believer in this idea of this, like, Hegelian thesis, antithesis, synthesis. I, I have having a hard time saying the word synthesis. I'm still a believer in it. And as, a, as an experience of human beings tilting kind of, from one extreme to another and then finding some new formula that works. I certainly don't think it's inevitable. I think it's observable in the past. Uh, I think when you're in a cultural paradigm shift that is happening around you, you don't know what that shift is until later. So we're in a, like a very messy series of moments when it comes to technology and um, what the effects of that are in a much more rapid fashion. I mean, look, we've all been, we humans have been living with the disruptive effects of technology for the past 200 years. It's just, there was a little, there was longer to digest new technologies uh, before, let's say the 1990s. You talk about the internal combustion engine, you know, to, it was a 20 plus year period maybe even 30 and 30 or 40 if you talk about globally for that to disrupt old modes of transportation for road networks to be built i mean it it certainly meant that massive change occurred in a lifetime but now with technology you know we're really talking about massive change occurring within decade or less uh, it's it, it it bears remembering that there was no smartphone until 2009 and yet, you know, I, I get reproached by my kids for not being adequately attuned to the dangers of social media, while then reminding them of the fact that they were the only and first generation to even grow up with this thing that didn't even exist when they were born, let alone when they were teens. Um, you know, the point being, it's awfully hard to adjust to something that quickly when it's that new. And I think that's true of a lot of our lives. And that's, you know, probably explains some degree of bewilderment that we're all kind of collectively feeling and that our, our adaption period to the new has become so short before the next new comes along that it can feel completely bewildering. Uh, the problem though is that you then also lose perspective, right? I mean, things are changing already, as you just said, so quickly within the energy space. 
that even those who are most adamant about sort of climate change and emissions fail to recognize how quickly things are changing. Indeed. And it's a couple of years ago, I stopped framing conversations from in terms of the climate change and the climate crisis, which I acknowledge. I've, I've interviewed enough climate scientists now that I can comfortably say that I'm cool with, I, I get it, I understand it, and and the urgency to, to change. Okay, that's fine. Uh, but the point of the of the climate crisis argument was to get us to talk talking about get or start talking about getting off fossil fuels and clean and getting onto clean energy. Well, that's happening, and it's happening at such an incredibly rapid pace. All you know, all a lot of the major technologies we need are already here. It's the question of how quickly we can adapt them, and then we have new ones coming all the time. And I don't. Instead of talking about the climate crisis and casting things in a you know a negative narrative. I try to create this hope and optimism narrative of what's coming, how that will change. You know, Tony Siba talks about how by 2030, if he's, you know, if the marginal cost of, of solar power may be down to zero. And when energy becomes that cheap, it does amazing things. It changes transportation. It changes urbanization. It changes food. It changes so much can change. And, and, in both the the developed West and but also in the emerging in the in the South, in in other areas, and it seems like there's a possibility here that we are going to go through a period of change analogous to like the Industrial Revolution or the the Enlightenment. I mean, it's it, that's the possibility here. If this, if we don't blow ourselves up or burn ourselves out or flood ourselves out or because of climate change, and and I. But communicating that narrative, it's kind of tough sometimes. Yep. Look, the other thing which you don't mention, which I think we're beginning to realize, is that um, the rate of population growth globally is slowing much more quickly. <laughs> I know that sounds like an oxymoron, slowing more quickly than anybody expected even 10 or 15 years ago. And it takes a while for like the UN and other statistical agencies to catch up with their models, which they're beginning to do. I think something came out in the past week that has a peak population of about eight and a half billion in 2050 and, and as low as 6 billion by 2100, which is way different than the kind of models you and I grew up with, you know, which we're talking about 10 or 15 billion people and then, and then, and then, and had the same sort of apocalyptic, um, fears that uh, some of your listeners may may vaguely remember the books in the 1970s, the population bomb and the coming catastrophe and peak oil was another one that we were going to, there were going to be too many people and then we were going to run out of energy. So it's the, the fears that preceded the climate crisis were kind of Malthusian and they were also that the carrying ability of the planet in terms of its own resources to support that population would would be inadequate. Neither of those things have come to pass, right? We've we've found more sources of energy and more sources of food. And so even when I say that, I hear all the kind of the natterings of, <laughs> yes, but, you know, that food has been uh, grown at the cost of monoculture and genetic seeds and petroleum-infused fertilizers, and that's created a whole resiliency problem, and we're on the precipice of a agricultural collapse. You know, maybe, but I've, you know, we've, we've, we've heard those arguments before. They were... They were fears then. I think they're probably like to be fears now, but fewer people are going to consume less stuff, you know? So 
maybe the issue is will we will we start consuming less stuff globally in time to avoid like the worst case scenarios of climate change by carbon emissions but at least it's a positive trend right fewer people older people just consume less stuff they consume less energy they consume less food they consume less materials like that's a positive trend it's not even one that you and i have to do have to agitate to do anything about uh but it's a powerful trend i can foresee a future not for me i'm uh, i just turned 64 last week and uh, i'm probably not going to see this magical future that i imagine but i can foresee a future that's run primarily on electricity power that comes from clean energy sources like wind and solar and geothermal mm -hmm. and all sorts of wonderful things and i can foresee cities where the transportation gridlock we have right now with cars and so on gets changed because we have things like robo taxis and more public transit and different different personal transportation models emerge that are more that are more varied and include walking and biking and scooting and all kinds of things i i can foresee different ways of uh, the tech, our food system being transformed by technology again getting back to seba you know, the we manufacture our food in factories instead of growing it, all those sorts of things. There is no doubt there will be downsides to that. There will, you know, we'll 50 if we were around 50 years from now, we'll be bemoaning the state of some, you know, technology that had unintended consequences. But it's also, you know, the potential of human civilization to to spread prosperity, alleviate hunger, disease, and, and hardship, and to also become, to sort of heal the planet, recover biodiversity, uh, mitigate the worst parts of climate change. The, the potential is there if we make good decisions, as, as Toynbee said. And that's a challenge. And I think we should embrace that. In, in many ways, I, while I get frustrated on social media and, and you know, have some of those conversations are very, very difficult. Nevertheless, it's kind of an, it's an exciting time to be alive. Yeah, and it's like worth remembering that Toynbee lived in a period of time where there were cataclysmic wars, you know, like way worse than anything that's gone on in our lifetime. Um, and yet still could maintain a more constructive perspective about the arc of human history. And that's also worth remembering, like, Things don't have to be going well in your present for you to have a more constructive view of what humanity is capable of. Because if anything, we all know how destructive humanity can be. You know, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't require much effort to be aware of that. We are reminded of it daily. We read about it historically. If, you know, anybody who goes to school, most history lessons these days are more a story of problems than they are a story of solutions. You know, we, we, we are nowhere in the world really about triumphalist past histories leading to a glorious present. Um, one of the reasons for cultural pushback in a lot of the Western world, you know, people feeling like we're actually inadequately telling stories of what we've done well. That's a whole other, you know, discussion. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be attuned to how we have solved problems in the past and where that's led us in the present. And one thing I try to remind people of, I try to remind myself of, is to be humble about what we think we know about the future, right? Which is basically nothing. And 
we should be mindful of how unknown the future is. And that means that our fears are just that. They are fears about what might happen and assigning probabilities. I mean, this is like a whole thing. I, I spent a 20 year career, uh, separate from my writing and separate from the books also on wall street or in the investing world. And I never cease to be amused by the people putting probabilities on future outcomes. There's a 10% chance of a recession the next year. Really? How, how do you know? Where'd you come up with that one? Um, I remember this, you know, there's a concern 2011, 2010, 11, 12 about whether or not Greece would or would not crash out of the European union. And people started coming up with statistical probabilities. There's a 50% chance Greece will, crash, will, will be kicked out of the European Union. I remember thinking, where'd you come up with that one? There's no past data set. You know, there's no like four times in the past when this happened, Greece was kicked out of the European Union. It was a completely new singular event. So how do you come up with a probability? So the probabilities about the future that we try to create, you know, there's a 20% chance we'll avoid global warming by 1%. How do you know? Based on what? I mean, I'm not saying we shouldn't think about where what the consequences are of our present actions if continued, all things being equal. Of course, all things are never equal. There are too many variables to every equation about the future. So we should be humble about what we think we know. And we should be mindful of the fact that a lot of what will happen in the future depends on what we do in the present. And a lot of what we what 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 we do in the present is as back to what you just said of what is the story that we tell? Well, let's. I want to. I want to talk very briefly about President Biden's uh, trip to Canada recently, and he gave a speech in Parliament that was very well received here, and partly because President Trump had come uh, years earlier, and it was a disaster. I mean, you know, he was saying all sorts of awful, awful things about our Prime Minister, and you know, awful things about Canadians and. You know, I mean, we historically, the two countries have had a very close relationship. And and then Biden came and it was night and day. It was very statesmanlike. It was, you know, stressed solidarity and common values and commitment to democracy and on and on and on and on. And Canadians love that stuff. You know, we like to bask in the glow of our big brother across the border. But I think he really meant it. I have no doubt that he really meant it. If he didn't, if it didn't mean it, he's a hell of an actor. But my point here is that we've seen in one presidency a negative, destructive force. I mean, Trump. I, I can't convey to you, Zach, how much Trump is loathed by the majority of Canadians. A very large majority, like eighty-five percent, just hate his guts. We really dislike him, and. Next, pre next president comes along and it's like night and day. And, and now, you know, we the future looks brighter. The future looks more positive and optimistic because our leader came and, and our, you know, we call our, our prime minister, Justin Sunnyways, you know, he's kind of a, a little bit like that himself. But it makes, it makes a difference to how we perceive the future. And just on... Another uh, uh, take on your comment about probabilities, one of the arguments I make in Alberta is, look, we don't know what the future is going to bring, but here are the trends. And here are some of the modeling that goes on. And, you know, we should be aware of that and, and think about that because it brings up two, two very broad 
uh, issues that we should address. One is Alberta's economy is based on hydrocarbons to a very large extent. Well, there's risk to that economy. So how are we going to mitigate the risk? What, is it, what does mitigate risk mean in this in an energy transition context? We should have that conversation, not just assume it's going to go on you know, to 2100 and everything is going to be fine. And then the other thing is opportunity. Because now we're talking about new sources of, of, of energy. You know, we've got renewables. Alberta's got great solar resources, wind resources. It's, it's building a hydrogen economy. I, was, I talked already about the opportunity to turn hydrocarbons into, into materials. So I can imagine a future based on trends and where, you know, research and development is going, that where the economy of Alberta doesn't just look better than today, it looks significantly better than today. And if we if the opportunities are seized, if, if the leaders have a vision and the government gets behind it, the business gets behind it, if we pull in the traces together towards this new vision, then Alberta can be much more than it has ever been or cannot, if it fails, to address these issues. And I don't know where that leaves me, but I'll throw that out there just as an observation. You know, it's interesting, you know, how much leadership can cloud one's perception of what's going on in a way that is usually in today's world wrong, I think. You know, the there are you think about Brazil going from Bolsonaro to Lulu, and you think about the United States going from Trump to Biden, or the UK going from Boris Johnson to Rishi Sunak with a brief Liz Truss interlude. And uh, they're kind of the same country, you know, under both. It's not like the country completely changes based on a change in regime. Uh, some changes in regime clearly make a big difference. You know, the collapse of the Nazi party in Germany. But in these democratic societies, you know, the, the, the people who lose are still there, right? On either side. And we do, uh, I think ourselves a disservice by constantly trying to rewrite the story based on who wins an election. It's a little like um, you ever talk to a sports writer, a, a, a major sports writer who try not to. No, but but basically, what what happens, particularly if it's a close game, and they have to file a story at the end of the game, they spend a some portion of the game writing two different stories. Right. Right. One is about the resilience of the team that won and how they showed their true grit and their character and the other is about you know why the team that lost wasn't able to come up with it and then the other is why that team that lost was showing resilience and grit and true character and the other team was because it could have gone either way right same team different story and uh i personally prefer biden to be president you know <laughs> i think it's a, i think it's better for the country but I don't think we just became a different country because Biden's president. And I don't think we're going to become a different country if Trump becomes president again. I mean, I think there'll be a lot more hysteria, which will be deeply problematic and distressing in its own right. You know, the the maelstrom of Trumpism will not be a constructive four years of our collective energies. But 
we, we I think I do ourselves a disservice. You know, political uh, elections and who wins are highlight different facets of who we already are. And we, I think, need to be mindful of that. Fair enough. Um, Zach, I know you have to go soon. So maybe let's wrap up the conversation. Give us your argument for why the future, or at least Canada and the US, but globally, if you like, is going to be, give us the positive, give us the the optimistic version of that. And I know you've done some of it already. You talked about, um, uh, you've talked about Pakistan, but you've talked about some other uh, uh, countries that are doing, that are going to be doing well. Uh, but, but give us the argument for Canada and the US, why we should be optimistic. Well, think about it this way. You could you could throw in Mexico to the mix too, given that it's the uh, the the renamed NAFTA, you know, the U.S. Uh, Mexico Canada Agreement. And here you have a pretty significant landmass. You have four hundred fifty million people, maybe a little more than that, close to five hundred million people in all three countries combined, uh, living in human terms in absolutely relative harmony. You know, massive cross-border trade, increasing economic integration. Uh, troops are not stationed along the border. I mean, yes, the U.S.-Mexico border, because of migration, is tense and somewhat militarized. But it's not militarized from the perspective of, like, we're, you know, U.S.-Mexico fought a couple of wars along the way. U.S. landed thousands of troops in Veracruz during the Mexican Revolution let alone the Mexican-American War. Canada and the U.S. haven't really fought as much. I mean, in the 18th Don't get me started on the Fenians in 1866. I've never, okay. I'll never forgiven the U.S. Right. for that. I mean, there is, there's been moments, you know, soft lumber and 5440 and fight. I mean, you know, we've had our, we've had our times. But that's like a good thing. You know, 500 million people living in relative harmony across, you know, thousands and thousands of square miles with thousands and thousands of miles of border uh, where the where the trend has been toward integration, and 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 economic activity in a beneficial way. If you look at the legacy of human beings living proximate to each other, that's a pretty extraordinary thing. You know, people don't often live next to each other without fighting each other. That this is not the case of that. So just like let's just stop for a moment and and at least genuflect in the direction of wow, that's kind of unusual when you look around the world uh, and kind of cool and pretty damn good. It's been good for all of us economically. It's been good for Mexico. It's certainly been good for Canada and the United States, two of the most affluent societies in the world. Uh, so I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll sort of start with that, but maybe leave with that as well as a, let's just look at that for a moment. Well, Zach, thank you very much for this. Uh, it was pleasant to have this conversation after the one I had this morning. And with any luck, uh, we'll have you back on a regular basis to spread some cheer. Cool. Thank you so much for the conversation. Mm -hmm.